This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh, and this is a special edition for which I sat down with Amitav Ghosh, one of the most prolific writers of our time, of books outstanding in their range and depth. Amitav Ghosh has written such classics as The Hungry Tide, The Glass Palace, In an Antique Land, The list is a long one. His books have been translated into dozens of languages and read across the planet. His most recent is The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. So Amitav, thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure seeing you after all these years. Yes, it's great to see you. And I have to say, I really absolutely enjoyed this. It's a wonderful book. Thank Thank you you. very much for doing this book. Um, So um, our relationship with nature is something you mentioned in this book. Uh, The fact that... uh, uh, Western uh, Western uh, colonial powers, in particular, had set this uh, this system where we have dominion over nature and so forth. And you documented what happened with the violence we've done to landscapes, the violence we've done to species, and so forth. But you also refer to a, pos- a potential reset of our relationship with nature. Do you see any possibility of that actually happening? And if so, do you think that's going to happen peacefully and voluntarily, or do you think that will emerge out of out of uh, huge conflict and upheaval in human society? Well, in the first place, I am very reluctant to use the word nature because I think the word nature itself comes with a sort of enormous colonial baggage, you know, and an enormous baggage of violence uh, that uh, that it carries. So I prefer not to use the word nature really as far as possible. Because, you know, the whole word, I mean, the word nature in itself implies a kind of dualism, you know, between the human and the rest. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of within that dualism, uh, it purports to show, you know, to create a human subject that is uh, divorced from nature and that uh, is completely separate, you know. Whereas we know that we ourselves are composed of so many different species, you know, bacteria, uh, the biome has, I mean, there are more bacteria living within us uh, than anything else, you know. So in that sense, we are very much uh, within that world of uh, of living things, if you like. Uh, certainly, I do think that, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's possible and necessary to move on from looking at the, uh, looking at the world in, uh, from the prism of these two dualisms. I think it's very important that we have uh, that we move on and try and find some other uh, some other way of framing the world. But if you just uh, if you just consider the difficulty of speaking about the world without using the term nature, and I can tell you, I mean, writing a whole book, uh, I uh, I have to face that problem all the time. Uh, it's hard to see how we're going to leave these concepts behind. They've become so deeply embedded, you know. They've become so much settled into our ways of looking at uh, looking at the earth that it's very hard to see how we might uh, change direction. But I think a change of direction is coming. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And as you say, I think this change of direction is going to be uh, very conflictual. You know, it's going to be, uh, it, I mean, it already is. 
This is the problem, you see, with the framing of the planetary crisis and especially in relation to climate change. We tend to frame it, especially within the Western discourse, it's always framed as a sort of technocratic, bureaucratic business, you know, which is best left to the technocrats and the diplomats and so on. And actually what really gets left, left out of it is that it is already a process of incredible conflict. Uh-huh. You know, the way that it's unfolding around the world is a, an inherently a conflictual process. And I think especially people in the global south and poor people in the global south understand this very well. It's interesting that you mentioned poor people because uh, I've been thinking also about climate change, you know, watching COP26 in Glasgow quite closely and there were huge crowds in the streets. We've seen the emergence of uh, the young activists like Greta Thunberg and so forth. And it was, I think, Boris Johnson who at COP26 said, warned that... uh, we might face some kind of revolution if we fail to adequately deal with the threat of climate change. And we have seen this anger in the streets. Do you think that there's a potential for that kind of uh, revolution uh, to come? Uh, But again, you said, as you said, it is the poor, as we know, who are worst hit by climate change. And it's hard to see the poor sort of rising up and getting, getting, you know, major change Look, uh, I think it's been true for the last 10 or 15 years that everything that is happening in uh, in the world is happening against the backdrop of the climate crisis. You know, it may not be explicitly referenced, but it's very much present in the background. So if you think of it like that, if you think of the... uh, If you think of the political and social sensitivity to climate change in the same way that we think of uh, atmospheric sensitivity, I think it's very much more than most of us uh, expected, you know. So already we see a profound uh, destabilization uh, of uh, everywhere, really. I mean, who would have thought that Britain, which has for centuries been the very model of uh, stability and political continuity and so on, would become so deeply uh, uh, destabilized by migration? And essentially, it was just migration that uh, destabilized the country so powerfully. So in that sense, uh, climate was very much behind uh, the destabilization of, of Britain. And in the same way, we see a complete destabilization of America. You know, uh, and I think we are going to see more and more of this. I think we are going to see more and more instability, uh, more and more uncertainty. I mean, you know, you look at countries which for a while had some sort of glimmer of, uh, how shall I say, uh, normalcy. You know, you think of Egypt, uh, you think of Myanmar, you think of India. All these countries are now now really just, uh, as it were, going in a very dark direction, you know. Uh I mean, Egypt literally has become unrecognizable. I mean, I did my PhD on Egypt, you know. Uh So I lived there in the 1980s and I've spent a lot of time there. Egypt now is literally unrecognizable in so many ways, you know. Egypt is losing enormous amounts of arable land to to, uh, sea level rise. Uh, salt water is permeating deeper and deeper into the Nile Delta. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, Egypt is a very fragile and vulnerable uh, ecology, you know. I mean, to this day, it's really just the gift of the Nile. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think there is already some sort of revolution occurring. And when we, when we talk about the poor being the worst affected, I don't think that the poor are, as you say, are going to stage this, uh, this revolution. Uh, if anything, it's going to be a revolution from the right. I think that's what we're really seeing. I mean, uh, you know, a, a kind of process of uh, what we might call eco-fascism. Fascism. Mm. You know, one of the marks of which is a sort of intense hostility to migration. So we are seeing that in the United States. We are seeing that uh, in India. We are seeing that in, uh, in Europe. So, and in all these places, uh, this uh, hostility to migration uh, gets superimposed upon uh, Islamophobia as well. So I do think we are seeing this kind of, uh, we are certainly seeing the rise of, uh, of a new kind of right. You know, a right which is actually uh, taking quite radical uh, uh, environmental positions of one kind or another. So, you know, when we say that the poor are the worst affected, <clears throat> You know, I think it's a, uh, it's become a kind of slogan which needs, in fact, uh, to be uh, unpacked uh-huh. and analyzed very carefully. Uh, because, you know, for the poor, of course, there is a sense in, I mean, so many poor people are losing their homes, they're losing, uh, they're losing their land and so on. But I don't think for, for, uh, for the poor, let's say, in India or in Asia or in Africa, uh, climate change represents, as it were, uh, an ontological crisis, uh-huh. you know, a sort of philosophical crisis. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas for middle class people, most of all middle class people in the West, that is exactly what it is. They're, they're basically seeing their expectations of the world disintegrate, you know, and that is what is, what is so difficult for them. Here in America, for example, I think that people have for so long grown up with this idea of progress, that the future will always be better, that when they can now quite palpably see the future is not going to be better. Uh, you know, and it isn't. I mean, it's, it's better maybe for a few billionaires, but for most Americans, the future is really uh, unraveling. And they can see that. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, and you know, all these regions uh, where once people had decent lives, uh-huh. uh, their lives are just unraveling. You just look at the impact of this recent uh, uh, set of tornadoes right. in Kentucky. Uh, you know, the, uh, the tornado sort of exploded over, the, over a region which has already been very badly affected by COVID. Uh, and it's been very badly affected by the opioid crisis. Yes. So, you know, we see now these multiple vectors unfolding across uh, middle America. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I mean, sometimes if you travel in the Midwest, let's say parts of Ohio and uh, Iowa and so on, so many rural communities have just become completely hollowed out. Hmm. They can't maintain their schools anymore. That's true. You know, uh, the rural communities are just completely dwindling. They have no uh, medical care. Uh, so we are really seeing uh, 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 the onset of a kind of um, a crisis that is not going to go away. It's not going to go away. And I mean, 
I, I hate to sort of turn this into a doomsday conversation, but I can't help wondering whether this will eventually be the downfall of our species. If we cannot collectively, if, if we remain mired in, if we regress into tribalism, for example, if we remain mired in great power conflict, for example, the US and China now, if we focus on all these, all these issues and neglect the larger collective existential crisis, will we end up, um, you know, as, you know, tri tribal people sort of fighting over resources like water and so forth, and then the Earth slowly becomes less and less habitable for our actual species? <laughs> I think uh, that uh, human beings are perfectly capable of ending themselves uh, long before the climate does. <laughs> And I think what we're seeing unfolding in uh, between uh, China and the United States uh, is uh, uh, is very, very worrying. I think it's leading in a catastrophic direction. You know, because uh, the United States is, uh, you know, by a long shot more powerful than uh, any other country. More than that, the United States is, it's not just the United States. You know, we've been living with this fiction of nations and so on. But in fact, what we have and have had for a long time is a is an Anglosphere, uh -huh. you know, which, is, which jointly has been sitting atop the geopolitical pyramid. And that's almost uh, formalized now in these Five Eyes security agreements and so on. Uh -huh. And uh, the, uh, the Anglosphere has so long been dominant in the world that I think it's psychologically impossible for them to accept that they might have any challenges. And uh, I say this uh, really out of a sense of uh, a deep sorrow, really, mm -hmm. uh, because I think even very well-meaning, uh, you know, Americans and Australians, on this, I mean, they may not even know it, but on this, they're completely unyielding. You know, I mean, they're absolutely determined never to... Uh, concede any of their power to any other part of the world. I mean, and we see this increasingly. I mean, just look at this latest military budget. Yes. I mean, they voted uh, to give the Pentagon more than the Pentagon wanted. You know, even though now it's perfectly clear that America's uh, military spending is actually not effective. You know, they waste a lot of money. They spend money on things. It's, uh, I mean, it's a vast structure of corruption. Yeah. Uh, which is why, in effect, uh, Russia and China have been able to uh, neutralize their military advantages, you know, especially with hypersonic weapons. I mean, that has really taken, uh, I think, the Americans aback. <laughs> and uh, certainly, just recently, there was an article by <clears throat> Michael Clare, who is one of the leading military historians, uh, where he says that uh, we should expect uh, a war to come around 2027. Uh, of course, he's as an American, naturally, they can never let go of their prejudices. So uh, he's projecting this date because he thinks that that's when the Chinese uh, 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 armed forces will in some way catch up or consider themselves to be on par with the American armed forces. What he doesn't acknowledge is that if that is actually the case, then the Americans have a huge incentive for initiating hostilities before the Chinese have caught up. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just logical. Yeah. So I think all those, all those portents are extremely grim. 
I mean, you look around America today, and this has been the case for the last 20 years. Uh, the only institution that is trusted across America is the army. There is no other institution. I mean, look at uh, look at uh, Congress's approval ratings. Yeah. Look at the Senate's. So look at you know the approval ratings of any politician. The only institution that is trusted uh, is the army. Yes. What would be your last quick one? What would be your sort of words of advice or wisdom to the younger generation? You know, the ten-year-olds and fifteen-year-olds growing up now in this world. Well, you know, I think they're coming into a very dark future. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even in the best case scenario, whatever we can do for climate already, we can see that the uh, social and political destabilization is far outrunning even the damage of climate change. And the damage of climate change is, uh, is going to be enormous. And climate change is just one aspect of the, of the planetary crisis. Uh, we can see with, uh, say, for example, this pandemic, again, what an immense blow it, it's been to younger people. So, you know, I don't know about advice, but certainly, you know, we can see that uh, for young people who are growing up today, take your nine and ten year old. They've spent almost a year completely cut off, mm -hmm. you know, from their, uh, from their peers. And it's undoubtedly going to take an enormous uh, psychological toll. And if you if you just look at the sort of unrest that occurred in America during the pandemic, I think it's just a harbinger of the future. Mm. You know, the unrest on the right and the left. I mean, it's uh, it's a uh, uh, we, uh, we see these polarizations becoming increasingly worrying, and we see also uh, the movement towards authoritarianism. Uh, look at Brit look at the Boris Johnson's Britain. I mean, the ways in which they're trying to now criminalize protests. Um, so, you know, I would, of course, advise younger people to take a greater interest in climate. And many of them are, as you say, one of the bright spots of Glasgow is that uh, very large numbers of people turned out, and especially young, angry people, you know. But we, we are deceiving ourselves if we don't recognize that the other side uh, have been prepared for this for ages, you know, I mean, uh, how was it that before in uh, before COP21 in Paris, uh, they were able to put, uh, you know, 40 French activists under essentially house arrest? Obviously, they've been under surveillance for a very long time. Yeah. And it's, you know, the FBI has repeatedly named uh, climate activists as the greatest threat. Oh. So... As far as state power is concerned, I think uh, the gloves are off. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, they're going to come after. Look at the incredible sentences that they're handing out to climate activists. Oh. So it's uh, it's impossible to be Pollyanna-ish about these things. Right. Okay. Well, on that <laughs> cheerful note, I should say, I don't know. Amitav Ghosh, thank you very much. Thank you, Nirmal. Wonderful. Great to, you. Great to talk to you. That's it for this special edition of the Asian Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. 
That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.